0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths' faithful volunteer and dramatist, Leslie Ford. Thanks for joining in our quest. In tonight's Christ followers Bible study, we're in the book of Acts, we're in chapter 8, and we'll be starting in verse 25, and as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Chuck, would you lead us,
1: please? Uh, Lord, we, uh, we thank you and we are mindful of your reminder to us that we should do our praying to you in the closet by ourselves in, in the darkness, and never in a way as to try to satisfy the minds and thoughts of others. And yet, with that in mind, we do thank thank you for your gifts to us, and we ask you to uh, provide not only us with a mission that we can use to serve you, but also to lead us in that mission and to provide us others who will participate with us. Thank you for what you've done, and we are grateful to you, Lord.
0: In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Chuck. That was well said. All right. Well, good evening, Mark. Good
2: evening. It's uh, great to be back with everyone. We're having what I hope is a good time looking at the book of Acts from the standpoint of a systematic renewal and restoration of Israel as promised in all the uh, Hebrew prophets. We're seeing uh, all of these promises being fulfilled. And we just looked in the early part of chapter 8 at the gospel being received by the Samaritans We refer back to the first chapter of Acts where Christ, still in the flesh, told his disciples uh, what the plan was going to be, that they would first preach in Jerusalem and in the area roundabout, then in all of Judea, then to Samaria, and then to all the nations of the world. And we've seen this plan unfolding exactly as Christ uh, had stated it, without any apologies or any failures thus far. We've seen huge success in Jerusalem with tens of thousands of Judeans believing that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Even some of the priests and some of the Pharisees and so on were believing. And then we have the pivotal event of the arrest and execution of Stephen, one of the Hellenistic Judeans who had, uh, or Greek speaking Judeans who had lingered in Jerusalem after Passover, and uh, after giving a a phenomenal summary of all the Hebrew scriptures, used them to condemn uh, the present leadership of Judea, which they didn't take kindly to, and they took him out and executed him, and then began a systematic persecution of all of the believers uh, in Jerusalem. The apostles stayed there and presumably the native Aramaic speaking Judeans but the Hellenistic or Greek speaking Judeans who had been lingering in the city now went back home or scattered throughout the Roman world and the phase of Christ's plan now shifted to Samaria in the early part of chapter 8 and we saw that the Samaritans there accepted the good news joyfully and and how this really fulfills uh, many, many prophecies of the reunification of the whole house of Israel during the last days of Israel or the days of the Messiah. And we have uh, one verse that kind of uh, wraps this up. Uh, Let's read uh, verse 25 alone, please.
3: After giving their testimony and proclaiming the word of the Lord, they went back to Jerusalem, bringing the good news to many villages of Samaria on the way and
2: the they here is referring back to peter and john who came down to samaria after philip another one of the seven greek speaking christians who was endowed with with amazing special powers by the spirit of god and who had been selected to uh, make distribution of charity to the greek speaking widows amongst the congregation in jerusalem After he initially relayed the news to the Samaritans, the apostles came down to transfer some of these miraculous gifts. They had laid their hands earlier on Philip and Stephen and the other five of these seven men selected earlier here in the book of Acts. And now they come down and laid their hands upon uh, some of the Samaritans to transfer uh, some of these gifts. Remember, they had no uh, equivalence of what we call our New Testament. They depended on these miraculous gifts from God to have recollection and knowledge to interpret the Hebrew Scriptures to show how that they are pointing towards and talking about the redemptive work of Jesus. And we'll see how this is carried out here in the latter part of chapter 8 to a different audience. But uh, these gifts uh, were transferred by that. So Peter and John had accomplished that and testified and preached the word while they were down there, then returned to Jerusalem, but made use of of the uh, time to uh, stop in all the other little villages in Samaria uh, on their way back to Jerusalem. This is the last time we hear John mentioned by name in the book of Acts. And it may be the last time we hear about the Samaritans. I can't remember. But we're moving right along now. Let's pick up our reading here in verse 26 and just read down through 29, please.
3: An angel of the Lord then addressed himself to Philip, head south toward the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, the desert route. Philip began the journey. It happened that an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official in charge of the entire treasury of Candace, a name meaning queen of the Ethiopians, had come on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and was returning home. He was sitting in his carriage reading the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit said to Philip, Go and catch up with that carriage. All right, great, thank you.
2: So Philip had accomplished this uh, mission to the Samaritans, and now angel, and that's a Greek word, it just means messenger, a messenger of the Lord spoke to him. The word doesn't really mean a non-human messenger or a human messenger. It it could refer to either a spiritual being or a human being. And in in this uh, chapter, and really in the book of Acts, Sometimes the angel of the Lord is used interchangeably with the spirit of the Lord. And certainly that word, uh, the angel of the Lord, is used in the Hebrew scriptures to refer to uh, God's spirit directly communicating to people, sometimes through a human form and sometimes just kind of as a voice uh, out of the other dimension or something like that. So it, it makes an interesting study, but it's not really our focus this evening. But Philip gets this message from God telling him to go south onto the way, which means road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, this is close to the present-day Gaza Strip, but there was an older city of Gaza that was destroyed by the Maccabean kings about 100 B.C., utterly destroyed, and then they rebuilt Gaza 40 or 50 years later in probably the present location, so the old city was a deserted spot, which this may be referring to, but there were sections on the road uh, either way that would have been uh, desolate areas with no habitations or villages, towns, and so on, so this is kind of the uh, this, the scene uh, for our story this evening. And if we remember back in Acts 1, chapter 8, Christ told the disciples, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And here's the last part, Unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so we have, up till now, we've been looking at the first two And then we did the third part in the first part of Chapter 8. And now we begin the last part here in the latter part of Chapter 8. Because here is a man of Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is not probably the present-day country of Ethiopia. But this was a Greek word that referred uh, in the first century to... Sudan, what we call Sudan today, the northern part of Sudan and the southern part of Egypt, the land south of the first cataract on the Nile being the rapids that prevented uh, navigation upriver beyond that point. That was really the break between uh, Nubia, as it was called, and Egypt. And the Greeks called Nubia Ethiopia and Ethiopia had a secondary meaning to the Greeks of all of the continent of Africa or er everything south of the Sahara Desert in Africa. So we don't know precisely, but there's a very good likelihood that uh, this man was a prominent member of the court of Nubia, present-day Sudan. And he would have likely had very dark skin at this time. Uh, Nubia. Only later did the Arabs come in, and there's still people of light skin and dark skin there. But in the first century, they would have been much more predominantly uh, dark skinned people. And this man was a, a eunuch who had uh, great authority under Candace, which actually the, it's just a Greek word that's come through the really meant the queen of Egypt or an Egyptian queen. And it was pronounced Kandaki in the first century, apparently. This man uh, probably had been altered surgically. Eunuch occasionally didn't have that connotation, but normally it meant someone that had uh, their reproductive organs removed so that they could uh, work near uh, royal women without in any way endangering their reputation and he was a a man with great authority having control over uh, the treasury apparently so he was like the chief financial officer of this queen's government but he had come up to Jerusalem to worship and he was now on his way back turning and sitting in his chariot and reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah now Philip's told to go join himself to him. But let me ask, would there have been any problem with this this black Nubian, presumably, who had been surgically altered, would there have been any problem with him going up to Jerusalem to worship? Oh, he wouldn't be
3: allowed uh, inside the temple. He'd be on the outer side of the temple. And,
2: yeah... That is absolutely correct uh, for a couple of reasons. We go to, uh, in the book of Numbers, I think it was. No, in the wrong place. But anyway, there's a reference in the law of Moses that uh, a foreigner, even if they were following the precepts of the uh, law of Moses, they would not be allowed near any member of the priesthood. And they were allowed to participate in a very limited extent. But they were definitely second-class citizens amongst the worshipers in Jerusalem. But then he had an even worse problem than being a foreigner. If we go to Deuteronomy 23.1, He that is wounded in the stones or has his privy member cut off, as the King James uh, says, shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Or in a a literal translation, says, He being wounded, crushed, or cut in his male member shall not enter into the assembly of Yahweh. So uh, this man recognized the God of Israel as the true God, and he was a student of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he even made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for some of the feasts, if not all of them. And yet, when he got up there, he was... um, by law, treated as a really a third-class citizen. He had two strikes against him, being foreign-born and being surgically altered. And so, this is a man who must have experienced uh, significant frustration in his spiritual life. Any, any thoughts or comments here down through verse 29?
3: Well, also, he was on the wrong side of the Nile. From the wrong side of the knot. being Ethiopian.
0: Now, would he would he have been lower than women, or would the women's status be a little higher than somebody
2: <laughs> like this? <laughs> well, that's a good that's a good question. They both had a lot in common. They definitely were second class to the uh, to the male members of Israel who were in good standing or pronounced clean by the priests. Uh, They were both second-class citizens in God's kingdom, but I can't say (laughs) which was in a lower state. Okay, sorry. But But definitely similar. Okay, let's read 30 down through 35 please.
3: Philip ran ahead and heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. He said to him, Do you really grasp What you are reading? How can I, the man replied, unless someone explains it to me. With that, he invited Philip to get in and sit down beside him. This was the passage of scripture he was reading. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer, he was silent and opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who will ever speak of his posterity, for he is deprived of his life on earth? The eunuch said to Philip, tell me, if you will, of whom the prophet says this, himself or someone else? Philip launched out with this scripture passage as his starting point, telling him the good news of Jesus. All right, thank you.
2: So, God here through direct intervention has sent Philip to find this foreigner with these issues, and has intercepted effectively this chariot. And Philip takes full advantage of this uh, intervention. And, and again, just as a side note, you know, we we see in the Book of Acts God's plan working exactly as it was supposed to we don't see failure we don't see excuses we certainly don't see thousands of years of postponement and this is another great example of God exercising his absolute sovereignty to bring about his purpose exactly how when where he intended uh, to do it so this man is reading from Isaiah 53. This is uh, one of the most important scriptures in the entire Bible, in my opinion. And it is, it's is—it's so deep that uh, we don't even want to get started trying to interpret all of the symbolism referring to Christ and his, his sacrifice on our behalf and his uh, suffering, and and so on and so on. And, uh, of course, it confirms that this suffering was part of God's plan, Isaiah 53.10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him in grief. Uh, This, of course, directly contradicts Darby, who who started the modern dispensational movement, who claimed that the cross was a complete failure uh, of God's plan to execute Isaiah 53 directly contradicts all of that kind of nonsense. But it's an incredibly powerful, powerful message. And, of course, just to demonstrate to this Ethiopian how the recent events in Jerusalem and and Jesus fulfilled all this would have been a wonder to this man. It would have been certainly an eye-opening experience. And we could talk about that uh, you know at great length, but I want to notice that uh, well no a uh, uh, subsidiary point first, how can I understand this unless someone shall guide me and and unfortunately, we have all these millions of of Christians in America today who don't understand any of the prophets without somebody to guide them away from the heresy that they bought into that that these prophecies are referring to some still future, unknown period of time and, and events, and, and so on. That's certainly not what they did, you know. And we we pointed out Acts three. The apostles pointed out that all of the prophets spoke of these days, meaning the days of the first century, and yet so many people today have to have someone to guide them back to the plain meaning of scripture and the traditional understanding that all these prophecies were fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ and his, his apostles. But now the, the main point is, he began, it says here at this passage, Isaiah 53, and preached to him Jesus. So I want us to just turn over just a few pages from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 56, which is a very short chapter of 12 verses. And and I'm going to read this, because certainly Philip would have gotten to this pretty quickly after, after his beginning here. Thus says the Lord, Keep judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that does this, and the Son of Man that lays hold on it, that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose Things that please me and take hold of my covenant, even to them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. Also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. And to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God which gathers the outcasts of Israel says... Yet will I gather others to Him, besides those that are gathered to Him? And I'll just I'll just stop there. It's that kind of completes thought. Do you think that this would have had any particular meaning to this man in the chariot? I would think so. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's like it's like the double cure for all of his problems. He's foreign born. And he's a eunuch. And here is a prophecy that when God comes to reveal his righteousness, that these foreigners who have tried to follow the law, who have kept the Sabbaths, who have made offerings, and so on and so forth, that they will receive an inheritance better than sons and daughters. And these that have been excluded from the family of God will live in the house of God. They will be brought to God's holy mountain and they will be made joyful in God's house of prayer. So this is one of of the scores of prophecies that talk about the regathering of Israel in the last days. And, And so we see again here in the book of Acts, the systematic fulfillment of every promise made to Old Covenant Israel. And they were being fulfilled through the spiritual restoration of Israel. I mean, this is profound material. You don't hear this taught in many places uh, today about Acts chapter 8 and linking it back to Isaiah fifty six. I mean, a lot of the good commentaries will will mention it in passing that there were promises made, but to to see this in the greater context of the systematic fulfillment of each promise, and we see how that, that the promises to ancient Israel of the regathering of Israel in the last days are tied into the last part of Christ's plan in Acts one eight to take the good news now to the uttermost parts of the earth. I mean, uh, Nubia was definitely not part of, of Judea. It was, it was a far, uh, far removed nation.
1: It's still almost the end of the earth, Mark. Even today, yeah. it's all
2: the way across Sudan.
1: It's a long ways. And I've never heard that presentation before, and I think it's
2: marvelous. And, it, again, this is not my uh, original material. I got this from my good friend Don Preston out of Ardmore, Oklahoma, who uh, taught this there in one of his classes back about 10 years ago. But it's absolutely phenomenal material when you look at it in this manner as the systematic fulfillment of all of these promises so that we see the complete consistency of all the promises to all the covenant Israel and then the actual fulfillment of those promises here in the New Testament and specifically here in the book of Acts. I mean, this is just devastating to our dispensational friends who believe that, that uh, the restoration of Israel is a still future physical event. that, That view cannot be sustained by even a casual reading of the book of Acts or the Bible. Let's go ahead then and read 36 through the end of the chapter, please.
3: As they moved along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there is some water right here. What is to keep me from being baptized? He ordered the carriage stopped, and Philip went down into the water with the eunuch and baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Nevertheless, the man went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself at Azotus next, and he went about announcing the good news in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. All right,
2: thank you. So, in verse 36, the, uh, the eunuch noticed that there was a, a, uh, a significant body of water there, and he asks about uh, baptism. Now, wh- why would he have even known about baptism?
1: Well, Philip had just, just told him while he were in the carriage.
2: Well, exactly. In other words, the, the, he preached unto him Jesus beginning from Isaiah 53. So, apparently, when Luke wrote this, in his mind, he's thinking that uh, baptism had a certain connection to preaching Jesus. And, of course, that's that's an easily proven point, but uh, there, there's a war against baptism uh, particularly amongst the southern baptist uh, church but but many others in america which is really unique in all of the protestant world for some reason they really want to downplay the significance of it but here and that's ironic being the baptist church you know they uh, <laughs> they don't like baptism oh <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, they like it, but they like it as just, uh, you know, once you've proven yourself, you can be baptized to show that you're a part of your of that local church. They don't tie it into entering into the spiritual body of Christ at all, which is clearly the way it's taught in the book of Acts. I mean, this eunuch didn't want to wait until the next time he came to uh, right. Judea, you know, to be immersed. He wanted to do it right then. And so there was a sense of urgency, and it, it certainly it serves throughout the book of Acts consistently as the gateway or the entry point where a believer, a new believer, can symbolically share in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ by being immersed in the water as in a grave, dying to their old self, and then rising up out of the water into a newness of life. And and Paul talks about that in many of his letters later. But but here they go down into the water again. As we've mentioned, the the Greek word means to cleanse by dipping, or I found another uh, literal translation of the Greek word, which means to completely wet something, to become completely wet, or to be uh, completely whelmed in water. So. It's another way of saying the same thing, immersion, uh, which is the the real English translation of this word, but it's too controversial to translate. So they go down into the water. If it was sprinkling or something, you know, why bother to go into the water? But they go down into the water, and Philip uh, immerses the eunuch. And then they come up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord, the same divine communication between God and Philip and this miraculous intervention that's occurring here as Philip systematically carries out God's plan, uh, intervenes again, and takes him up the coast to the north, uh, stopping at Azotus, which is Ashdod in the ancient world, and it's been renamed Ashdod today, and it's occupied by Israeli uh, settlers north of Gaza, both Gaza and Ashdod were two of the five great cities of the Philistines who settled there on the coastal plain of Palestine uh, in ancient times. So Philip preached in Ashdod and then all the cities along the coast until he came up to Caesarea, which was the the great and magnificent port city that Herod the Great uh, built from nothing on the northern coast of Judea. But meanwhile, and and Philip is going to stay there for like 26 years. We run into him much later in the book of Acts, still in Caesarea. He apparently hmm. settles there, and he and his wife have uh, seven daughters. We'll see them later. But this eunuch, now this is weird. The eunuch didn't see Philip when they came up out of the water, but what did the eunuch do when he's left there all alone? Rejoice. Yeah, now why would a guy like that have anything to rejoice about? And that's a He's I mean I the... have a warped sense of humor obviously.
0: <laughs>
3: He's in the Lord. He now. got a better
0: deal. A much better deal. <laughs>
3: exactly. <laughs> he got
0: a fair shake.
3: <laughs>
2: exactly. This, this is so powerful because we see the contrast between the old physical devastated Israel which had been just through the through the years devastated by their own iniquities their own sins they've been carried off into captivity they're, they're held down by the law they're reminded over and over again of their unworthiness on a daily basis and that they have no hope at all until the Messiah comes and this guy's been part of that but now in contrast now he's been brought into the newly spiritually restored Israel and he is no longer a third-class citizen. He is now a prince in the kingdom of God. Now, uh-huh. is that is that worth rejoicing about or not? I mean, he well, sure. everything he's ever dreamed of now has just happened to him in one afternoon or whatever part of the day this was. And not only that, but he is empowered now to take this great news and his knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures back home with him to Nubia and to to share it you know with others when he gets back home
3: to with help fu- the queen
2: yeah exactly to to fulfill the fourth part of Christ's plan to carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth so i mean this is just this is just amazing material and again it's just devastating for the idea that the the uh, the church age is an afterthought that's just a holding pattern God had to throw together at the last minute when the kingdom failed. And that we, we get to look forward to going back to the temple and the priests and making eunuchs second class again and foreigners and everything else all second class to uh, physical Israelites. I mean, it's like... It's like the dog returning to the vomit and claiming that yeah. it's ten times better than than Alpo. <laughs>
3: oh dear. I guess that's a crude <laughs> illustration. Uh, anyway, I uh, guess, but you you you're making a very clear point there. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Okay. But
2: yeah, I mean, this is a good point to stop. Uh, I'll
3: I'll. I end. have a I have a okay. comment though. Go ahead with any comments. I do. I do believe uh, Ethiopia was one of the first countries to become Christian, a Christian country, Ethiopia, from what I hear historically.
2: Yeah, I mean, Lower Ethiopia, which would be more the southern part of uh, Sudan and the northern part of present-day Ethiopia, was Christian by the year 330. I don't have. Uh, the date for Nubia, or, or this northern part of Ethiopia. Let me see if I can find that quickly. But uh, yeah, obviously we don't know exactly what he accomplished when he went back home. But uh, the country certainly did become completely Christian, as did Egypt and and uh, most of the surrounding area. Isn't that something? <laughs> The earliest history we have of Christians in that area is around 350. The, uh, the lower kingdom conquered present-day Sudan around 350, and they were all Christians by that time.
0: Okay, well that was a fascinating study, and well done, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it, as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the
3: straight gate.